Hear another parable, verse 33. You see, a single parable was not enough to describe these religious leaders, these rebellious, stubborn religious leaders attempting to trap Jesus in his words so that they might destroy him. One parable was not enough, and so Jesus speaks another parable to them. A parable that served not to alleviate their anger, but instead to increase it. Jesus speaks a parable that ought to have brought them to repentance, but instead this parable only served to enrage these religious leaders even further. So in the first of three consecutive parables recorded in Matthew chapter 20, 21 and 22, first we looked at it last week, Jesus explained, he spelled out for them, the defiant, or spelled out for the crowds, the defiant and obstinate attitudes of the religious leaders that were standing before him on that day. And he revealed to everyone listening, everyone present, the hardened hearts and the hypocrisy that characterized that particular generation of chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people. And so Jesus taught in the first parable, the parable of the two sons, in so teaching that parable, he rebuked the very leaders who came to him that day in the temple and interrupted him while he taught the crowds and proclaimed the gospel to the crowds. And he pointed out to everyone so that everyone could see their refusal to hear and believe the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the first prophet sent by God to the nation of Israel in over four centuries, and they refused to listen to him. John the Baptist, the one the crowds recognized as a clear and unmistakable prophet who declared to the people of Israel that this Jesus was the Messiah come from God. John published for all the world to hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. And yet, even though everyone knew John to be a prophet, the message that he spoke irritated and grated against the religious leaders who loved their positions of power and influence over the people, over the common folk. And these same religious leaders were at this moment unprepared to give up those positions of power and influence, even if a prophet from God himself should come to them, point out the long-awaited Christ that has come to deliver them and save them from their sins, they would rather hold on to their positions of power than humbly repent. This generation of Jewish leaders in Israel rejected John and his message, and turned away from Christ, but they even did something worse. They actively sought to eliminate Christ and turn the whole nation against him. And now, in this second parable, Jesus again speaks to the crowds in the hearing of the interfering religious leaders and illustrates in parable form a lesson, a short, a sort of history lesson for everyone. He tells them in story form this truth. The spiritual authorities in Israel rejecting the prophet John and Jesus the Messiah are simply doing what the religious administration in Israel has always done. Rebelling against, spurning, and actively working against the gracious, clear, and repeated call of God to all of his people to repent and return to him for mercy and forgiveness. That's the parable in a nutshell. It is a history lesson describing for the people that their rejection of John, their rejection of Jesus, is simply another in a long line of repeated rebellions and rejections against those the Lord has sent to them to call them back to mercy and grace through repentance. A mistake that hopefully we dare not make ourselves. You see, repentance means that one must humble themselves. Repentance means that we must identify our sins and do so honestly and then confess those sins as what they are, sins. Turn away from them, leaving them behind in favor of obedience 
to the good will and command of God. That is what repentance is. Humbling ourselves, identifying and confessing our deeds as sinful, turning away from those sinful deeds, leaving them behind. But as it is with humanity as a whole, humbling ourselves in repentance is no easy task, is it? Even though we, even we who confess and profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even we have a difficult time humbling ourselves and repenting, don't we? We know that God's Word, based on God's Word, that joy and peace and communion with God, who is the very delight of our souls, is located on the other side of repentance. And still, how difficult is it? Even when a trusted brother or sister in the Lord, even when someone we know loves us and has nothing but the best for us at heart, even if they should come and point out some sin in our lives that we must repent of, what is our first response? Is it to humble ourselves and repent? Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes our flesh wants to defend what we've done, defend our sin, justify ourselves in our sin. Sometimes we want to lash out at them and fracture and break relationship because they had the gall to say that we should repent. Even for us as believers, true humble repentance is difficult business. And yet, even though it is difficult, the prophets... Over and over and over again, this was their message. Repent, repent, repent. John began his ministry crying out to the people in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the first word of his public ministry, repent. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who began his earthly ministry, when he began his earthly ministry, began his ministry with the same word, repent. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ, turn from sin, turn to the Lord in obedience. Repent. And why do they consistently call out for repentance? This most difficult work of repentance. Because both knew, both John and Jesus, along with all of the prophets who had come before, they all knew that repentance is the pathway to an unhindered relationship with God. And what is more joyful, joy-bringing, and delightful to the, our souls than unhindered relationship with God? Nothing! Our happy estate comes as we repent and confess our sins, and have nothing between ourselves and the Lord. The great Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks wrote this, Nothing can make that man truly miserable that has God for his portion. Portion here meaning his part, his lot, with which he rests fully satisfied. It brings us back to the idea of the Israelites giving, being given their lots in the promised land and being satisfied in the pleasant land that God had given them. That's what that word portion means. Nothing can make that man truly miserable that has God for his portion, nor nothing can make that man truly happy that lacks God for his portion. God is the author of all true happiness. He is the donor of all true happiness. He is the maintainer of all true happiness and blessedness. And therefore, he that has him for his God, for his portion, is the only happy man in the world. See, the Puritans understood our happiness, our delight, our joy, our peace. All of it is found in our relationship, our unhindered, unblocked relationship with the Lord. And so when the prophets come, when John comes, when Jesus comes, and they all begin with repent, what they're telling you is be joyful in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. The call to repentance the call is a call to right relationship with God, which is therefore a call to your happiness to your rest, to your satisfaction in and with the Lord Himself. Which is why the call to humility before the Lord is reiterated over and over and over again throughout Scripture. It's a warning to us that we do not ourselves become like the stubborn, hard-hearted, hard-headed religious leaders that are talking to Jesus on this day. 
Hear the imperative, for example, from James, who wrote this to the believers. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your mind, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And listen, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, repentance is a difficult and somber labor. It is a painful work that we work. It is a pain, it's painful as we work through it. But the end result, as James said, is he, the Lord, will exalt you. And armed with such knowledge, convinced by such a truth, how could you and I, who live in such unhindered, repentant relationship with the Lord, not be overflowing with joy? And how could we not be loving our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord by calling them to the same joy? For this reason, knowing the results of repentance, the great reformer Martin Luther used to say, all life is repentance. A constant confession of sin, striving to turn from our sin to the Lord who is our great joy. And the Apostle John makes it clear this is one of the texts that is close to so many of our hearts. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Is there anything that delights your soul more than to be cleansed of unrighteousness? To be forgiven of your sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the pathway to your true contentment. This is the pathway to Israel's true contentment. And for this reason, God graciously and mercifully sent to them prophet after prophet after prophet with a call to repentance. Joel, for example, cried out to Israel, Return to the Lord with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. And in the same way today, the Lord commissions faithful preachers and faithful elders and faithful Christians all over the world to proclaim the same message. The message of repentance and faith to the unsaved, that they might turn to Christ in faith and find their ultimate joy. And to the saved, who for some reason or another find themselves in a season of life where they simply refuse to humble themselves in repentance and obedience to God's word. If people humble themselves before the Lord, recognize their sin, confess their sin, and turn from their sin, this is one of the great signs of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in your soul. And oh, what a comfort and joy that is. If, however, one refuses, as the religious leaders in Israel did over and over and over and over again, Throughout their generations, Jesus will, in applying the parable later on as we get to it, pronounce a great woe and warning upon such a one. But before we get there, let's look at the parable itself, the history lesson itself, starting in verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So as Jesus begins this parable, he uses terminology that the ears of the religious leaders who are standing there listening to him would immediately recognize that of the vineyard and the preparation made by the owner for the production of fruit in and from the vineyard. You see, the backdrop for this parable is actually located back in Isaiah chapter 5. If you want to flip to Isaiah chapter 5, you can hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah as he speaks to this subject. This is the backdrop. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1.
Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded only wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars. And thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the the backdrop for the parable that Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 21. Do you see the direct connections that are made here? The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And so as Jesus now tells this parable, he updates and retells this prophetic word from Isaiah to a new generation. A new generation that is doing the exact same things as the previous generation. And they are familiar with their role in the story. They know exactly what Jesus is saying about them when he retells this parable. You see that at the very last, this, uh, verse 43, verse 44, verse 45, when it says they knew, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And so you see, there was a master of a house. And in the parable, this master represents the Lord, the Lord who plants the vineyard, the God of Israel who took it upon himself without any outside help, any outside assistance, he planted a vineyard. Meaning, he chose a people for himself from among all the peoples of the world to be, according to Exodus 19, verse 5, his treasured possession among all the peoples. We read it in Exodus chapter 19. He says, Now therefore, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So not only did the master of the house, the Lord, plant this vineyard, but he also provided everything necessary for the vineyard to actually produce an abundant harvest. Look at what the text says. He put a fence around it, meaning he encircled and protected the vineyard from any pests that might sneak in and try to raid it. He dug a wine press in it so that the tenants might have everything required to produce wine for consumption and sale from the fruit. And he built a tower, meaning in the, center of the, in the center of the vineyard, there'd be a tower, a place for archers and lookouts to watch over the garden and protect it against robbers who would seek to plunder the vineyard. In other words, the master set in the vineyard a number of special and unique advantages to assist the tenants in their ability to yield a healthy, abundant harvest of grapes. This is what the Apostle Paul means in Romans chapter 3 when he said to the Roman Christians, What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So you see, the great advantage possessed by the vineyard of Israel was their being given the specific revelation of God's law by which to live. At this point in world history, everyone else, all other nations, groped around looking to nature, looking to conscience, looking to other things. Israel alone was given the fence, the wine press, and the tower of God's law. They alone possessed the blessing of knowing exactly who Yahweh is, what He is like, what He commands, how to be right with Him, and how to please the Lord in a life in life individually and as a people. What a blessing. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 actually said this very thing to the people of Israel. Listen. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? 
whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Deuteronomy chapter 4. And similarly, for us today as the church, the Lord has given to us, His church, the Word of God, the clear, final authority in all matters of faith, in life, of life, and of practice. Never underestimate the great blessing that the Lord has given to us, the fence, the wine press that He has given to us, the tower that He has given to us of His Word to govern our lives as individuals and as a body. But back to the parable. Even with all of these preparations made by the master of the house, we see in the parable that they are unfaithful to the commands of God. See, the master of the house leased the vineyard, well supplied and ready to produce to tenants in verse 33, right? You see that? He leased it to tenants. Now, the tenants here represent the leaders of the nation of Israel, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And notice that the vineyard isn't given to them. The vineyard is leased to them, meaning that the owner of the vineyard, the master who has gone away for a time, still owns the vineyard. And he leases it to the tenants with the expectation that the vineyard will produce fruit under their care and that the portion owed to the owner would be given in season as expected and as agreed upon. See, the Lord entered into a covenant with Israel and promised blessings in response to their fidelity to that covenant. And so as the Lord watches Israel... What he wants from them is their obedience. But they never seem to get this right post-Solomon. And you see, the master of the house went into another country. In the parable, the phrase mean, means the master moved away for a prolonged time. The master, however, even though he is in another country, still expects his fruit, verse 34. You see, verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So the servants here represent the prophets that have been sent by the Lord to Israel to call for the fruit that he expects. And what is that fruit that the Lord expects from Israel? The Lord declared it to them in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. And he said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them these words. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the fruit that the Lord expected from His people Israel. They're being set apart as an obedient, light-bringing nation for all the nations that surrounded them. But when the Lord sent His people, His servants, to go and check on the, on the tenants, on the nation, what did these servants see? What did the prophets of the Lord see when they came to the nation of Israel? Did they see fruit-bearing leaders? No, they did not. In fact, 2 Chronicles 24 tells us they saw things like this. 2 Chronicles 24, 17-19 reads, After the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet the Lord sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. And again in 2 Chronicles 36, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people until there was no remedy." In other words, when you look at the history of Israel, when the Lord sent prophets to collect the fruit, there was no fruit to collect. 
The nation of Israel abandoned the Lord. They rebelled against the Lord. And the Lord, out of his great compassion, still sent his servants, the prophets, to call them back to himself. These prophets went with a bold, courageous, clear, direct, and truthful bellowing, a crying out to the people, Repent! Obey the Lord! Heed his commands! Love Yahweh! This was his grace showered upon a people who just never seemed to love him in return. You see, the most devastating judgment that can come upon a people is the lack of prophetic voices, is the lack of bold from the mouths of the servants of the Lord. You see, Solomon understood this. He wrote it in Proverbs 29, verse 18. He said this, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Or, as we're probably more familiar with hearing it from the old King James, where there is no vision, the people perish. Vision here means the prophetic call to repentance. The idea that being that without God revealing His truth by way of prophets, the people run wild, they run headlong into wickedness and sin, which ultimately ends in the judgment of God upon that people. And so you see the prophetic voices that the, the Lord continually sent to His people Israel, and the prophetic voices, albeit different in our day, prophetic now being those who boldly and articulately proclaim the truth of God as revealed in Scripture, the prophetic voices that we have in our own day is a grace of the Lord given to us. Because the Lord calls to everyone to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the people listening to them at, him at the Areopagus in Acts 17. The Lord now commands all people everywhere to repent. But Israel didn't see the servants of God calling for their repentance as a blessing to them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Not many seem to see those courageous, bold voices who stand upon God's word and call for repentance in our culture, call for repentance from leaders, call for repentance from church leaders, call for repentance from Christians, call for repentance from society. Many don't seem to look at those and say, oh, thank God for them. But it is truly a blessing to have godly leaders standing on the foundation of God's word calling for every single aspect of our culture and society, our churches, everywhere, all to repent. Israel didn't see them as a blessing from the Master. For the nation of Israel, rather than thanking God for the time and for those that He sent to them to turn them back to Himself, the parable describes in verse 34, look, the tenants took His servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. They beat one. Like you can see these in Scripture. An example of this would be Micaiah, who listened as the false prophet Zedekiah told King Ahab in 1 Kings 22 that Ahab would triumph in battle if he rose up and went against the king of Syria. Micaiah, however, not one to simply tell the king whatever it is that he wanted to hear, but more concerned to speak that which God had actually decreed, prophesied the truth. In the hearing of the king, he said this, Ahab, if you go up to die, or if you go up to battle, you will die. 1 Kings 22, 34, because the Lord has declared disaster for you. Now, what's the result of Micaiah's truth-telling? Is it Ahab going, well, thanks. I'm so glad you told me. I love it when people tell me prophetic truth like that. No, it was not. 1 Kings 22:24 tells us that the false prophet Zedekiah came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of God go from me to you? In other words, Zedekiah, the false prophet, wanting to maintain his position of influence in the king's court, called Micaiah, the real prophet, a liar. And Ahab put Micaiah in prison. You might also think of Elijah having to flee the murderous threats of Jezebel. You might also think of Jeremiah enraging the officials with his prophetic words so that, Jeremiah 37, 15, they beat him and imprisoned him. But you see, the servants 
The tenants not only beat the prophets, but they also killed and stoned the prophets. And we see this, for example, in the life of the prophet Zechariah. In 2 Chronicles 24, we read this. The Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. But the people conspired against Him. And by command of the king, they stoned Him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. They killed the prophet Zechariah in the Lord's house without mercy. Why? For speaking the truth of God. For calling the people to repentance. Are we getting the picture of the difficulty that repentance entails? Nehemiah, praying to the Lord on behalf of the Israelites who returned to Jerusalem at the end of their exile in Babylon and Persia, summed up Israel's history with the prophets by saying this in Nehemiah 9.26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And in the New Testament, we have Stephen preaching to the high priest, preaching to the scribes and the elders of Israel after Christ's ascension. And he asked them, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And in keeping with their historic tendency the leaders of Israel after the ascension of Christ were, according to Acts 8.54, enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. And they cast Stephen out of the city and they stoned him to death. It's these same religious leaders who subjected the Apostle Paul to brutal lashings. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews speaks of those prophets of old when he recounts history himself, saying this, the prophets of old who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy." wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is how the prophets of God have been treated by the world and even by the people of God throughout the history of our planet. And it didn't only happen to one wave of prophets. Look at verse 36. Verse 36, Jesus tells The next response of the master of the house, saying, Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. number of prophets were sent to Israel, a number that probably aren't even recorded in the Word of God, that we have no, no idea about. And they did the same to them. Now, I want you to just notice the the patience of the landowner, the patience of of the homeowner with these wicked tenants. Instead of immediately descending upon them to crush and destroy them for their insolence, the master sends yet more and more to call for the fruit that he expects from them. But the the tenants repeat their earlier sins and do the same to the second round of servants, beating and killing and stoning them. And so the master does does something rather unexpected. Again, instead of sending his armies to collect the heads of these contemptuous and insubordinate tenants, he once again displays his benevolence and his leniency even with such horrendous sins as these tenants have committed. Saying in verse 37, they will respect my son Now, the master of the house would be perfectly justified in descending upon and crushing these tenants, right? But he doesn't. He sends to them his son. Mark records this like this. 
The master had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them, him to them, saying, They will respect my son. The master of the house sent to the tenants his beloved son. Hopefully, the symbolism is clear. The picture is of the God who, in his love for his wayward, rebellious people, sent his unique, one-of-a-kind, beloved son to save all who would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. But what did the tenants do? How did they respond? How did they react as they saw the sun coming over the horizon to them? Did they respond in joy and acceptance? Did they respond in happiness? Did they say, yes, the sun is here? No. Look at verse 38 and 39. When the sun arrived, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Do you see the depths of the rebellious tenants? You see the depths of their hatred for the Lord that they profess to serve. And what makes it even worse is that they knew Jesus was come from God. They knew that he was a man that the Lord had sent. Nicodemus made that crystal clear when he visited Jesus under the cover of night and said, speaking on behalf of the Pharisees in John chapter 3, verse 2, he said this, Rabbi, we know. Who's the we? It's his fellow Pharisees. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And yet, even though they knew Jesus was a teacher come from God, they still said, come, let us kill him. Why? Because they wanted the inheritance for themselves. They want ownership of the vineyard. They want Israel for themselves. They want to lead it. They want to rule it. They do not want the master of the house to tell them how they're supposed to lead and rule over it. They want the influence. They want the power. They want the prestige. They want the accolades of being the ones who lead in the vineyard. But even though they want that, it can't change this truth. The vineyard belongs to the the master of the house. And Christ reiterates this. And for that reason, they want him dead. They wanted Jesus, the rabbi come from God, eliminated because he called them to repent of their wicked, nasty desires. But this command conflicted with their passions. It conflicted with their desire to maintain their proud, high, and lofty stations over the vineyard. And even though they were repeating the same sins as all those wicked leaders that came before them, they continued going. They continued the same thing. And and so they took the son and cast him out of the vineyard, meaning they rejected him entirely. They forced him out violently by killing him. See, Jesus had been revealing this very truth to the disciples throughout his time with them. But now, even though it's in parable form, he quite transparently displays his knowledge of the religious leader's intentions. And he declares himself to be the son of the vineyard's owner. Something that the religious leaders cannot and will not sit idly by and take. So now with the parable concluded, Jesus now applies and explains it as he looks to the crowds and he asks them this question in verse 40. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now if you have any sort of innate sense of justice, the answer is pretty easy, isn't it? If you owned some sort of rental property and every time you sent somebody to collect the rent that was rightly owed to you and the tenants kept murdering everybody and then they murdered your own child, what would you do to those tenants? Your justice, your sense of justice should be rising right now. And the crowds, probably angered by the thought 
of so grievous an injustice answered in verse 41. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. By this point, the religious leaders listening in understood the point of the parable. They understood that by tenants, Jesus was speaking about them. And Luke records that. When the crowd said these words, he will put those wretches out, of, give them a miserable death, and, and let, the, let the vineyard out to other tenants, the religious leaders, according to Luke, immediately reacted saying, surely not. Nope, that's not going to happen. God will never do that. He'll never kick us out. There is no way. This is the religious leader's response. First, they refuse to accept that they are wretches, as the crowd terms it. That word there means reprehensible, pernicious, and evil. They refuse to accept that the master of the house, the God of Israel, would consider putting them, the religious leaders, to a miserable or severe death. And even more, they refuse to accept the idea that the vineyard might be taken away from them and given to others who give the owner the expected fruits in their season. These religious leaders thought very highly of themselves. In many ways, they thought they knew more than God did. Still a pretty common flaw in humanity, isn't it? The idea here being that the stewardship of the kingdom of God would be taken from the hands of these religious leaders, religious leaders who have always rejected and rebelled against God's call to repentance, and it would be given to a people, regardless of ethnic background, who produce the fruits of holiness, righteousness, and obedience to the Lord. And we find ourselves in this season right now. We as the church, those who truly love the Lord, who've turned to Jesus Christ in faith, in trust, and repentance, we are the current tenants. And the Lord expects from us fruits in season. The Lord expects us to be those who pursue holiness and pursue righteousness and obey His Word, who represent Him to the world that we live in. Now, just as an aside, the Lord will, however, in accordance with his loyal, steadfast, long-suffering, patient, irrevocable love and commitment to the nation of Israel, return to them in the future when they do repent, and they will be given the kingdom that is promised to them. But for now, the season is on us. In this season, it's on us to be the light of the Lord in this dark world. It's on us at this point in time, to cry out to a lost and dying people the same message that God has always proclaimed through His prophets. Repent and be reconciled to the Lord. It's on us to represent the Lord Jesus Christ as His ambassadors. It's on us to adorn the precious gospel of the perfect life, the atoning death, the, confirm, the work-confirming resurrection and ascension by living God-honoring lives here on earth. Because as Jesus now fixes his eyes on the religious leaders, Luke tells us that, after the crowds answered and the religious leaders said, surely not, Luke says, Jesus looked directly at them, at the religious leaders, and he said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? A phrase Jesus will use quite often with the religious establishment, as if to say, you... The so-called theologians in Israel, the teachers of Israel, are you really this dull that you haven't noticed this rather simple truth in the scriptures? Have you no understanding of the sacred, authoritative word of God? Have you never read, verse 42, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here quotes Psalm 118, 22 and 23, which in its original context refers to Israel. The rejected stone in Psalm 118 is Israel, the nation of slaves, the nation that had nothing special to offer, especially when compared with the larger and more prestigious nations all around her. 
And yet this small, rejected nation turns out to be, by God's work, by God's marvelous work, the key to salvation. This nation, once thought worthless by the great powers of the world, the Lord, during the reigns of David and Solomon, gives to it the honored place among the nations. And this all came to pass by the Lord's power. And David said, it is his doing. And it is a marvelous sight to behold how the Lord could take something so rejected and make it the chief cornerstone. And now Jesus applies the psalm to himself, explaining to the religious leaders that the greater prophetic fulfillment of David's word refer not to Israel in particular, but to himself. The apostle Peter reiterated this particular prophetic word, both in his preaching and in his letters. This, this concept seemed to have hit Peter hard. We see when he preaches to the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Peter says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And again, in his letters, Peter wrote this, As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The picture here is, in, in, in Jesus' day, in, in the ancient day, before when, when people were planning to build some sort of large, grand, magnificent structure, they would go out into the fields where there were big stones and they would look at them. And they would select the best stones to use in the construction of these grand buildings. And Jesus here, applying this psalm to himself, declares that he, the Son of God, the Messiah, was the stone in the field that they walked by and said, we don't want that stone. That stone doesn't mean anything. You can't build anything on that stone. And they reject it. He, the Son of God, the Messiah, will be rejected like a stone in the field by the religious establishment in Israel. However... The Father in heaven has determined that Jesus will be the cornerstone, meaning the single most important and the most prominent stone in the temple of his saving gospel. Christ is the cornerstone of salvation. As Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. And because the builders, because the religious leaders in Israel rejected Christ the cornerstone, he continued his rebuke in verse 43. Look at it. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The privileged position of these religious leaders will be lifted up from them, will be taken away from them. Their oversight of the vineyard will be removed from them as they've proven over and over and over and over and over again to be wicked tenants. Now, this is not speaking about Israel. This is speaking about the leaders of Israel. And we know that because in verse 45, when the religious leaders hear what Jesus is saying, they immediately say, or they immediately perceive that he was speaking about who? Them. Them there means the religious leaders. This is not some wholesale rejection of Israel, who at the time, and even up into our own day, rejects her Savior. But this is a rejection of the religious leaders, their spiritual leadership over the nation, the religious leaders of the day and all the way up to our day who point that nation away from the Lord's provision for them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Responsibility to faithfully produce the fruits of the kingdom will be given to a new people for a season. The idea being that oversight and stewardship of the kingdom will pass from the hands of the religious leaders and given to a people of whatever ethnic background, whatever skin color, whatever language, who will produce the fruit of the kingdom as they follow Jesus in accordance with, as we see in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching. The Lord will, however, in accordance with his loyal, steadfast love, bring the nation of Israel back to himself in the future, but we will be talking about that soon.
For now, we must concern ourselves with the commands of Christ. You and I, the church, as the overseers now, must fix our eyes upon and labor diligently now to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We must labor diligently to produce the fruit of love for our neighbor, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, loving them like we love ourselves, Jesus said. Meaning that in the same way we endeavor to ensure that our souls are saved, that our souls are in right relationship with the Lord, we do the same for those around us. The fruit, like James wrote in James 1.29, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Do you see the twofold fruit here? Actively be helping and tangibly be caring for your fellow believers in their affliction and actively be avoiding worldliness and doing all you can to keep yourself unstained by the world. There, is, there are two fruits in that, in that text. Tangible love for your neighbor, keeping yourself pure, holy, and unstained by the world. You see, the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to here were completely stained by the world in that they sought for, chased after the very same things that the world did. Power, position, influence, and the rest. But the household of God, you and I, to whom stewardship has been given, our hearts are to be filled with love for God and unstained by the world. Our minds are to be filled with thoughts of God and the knowledge of His Word and unstained by the world. Our souls are to be filled with Christ and the Holy Spirit and unstained by the world. Our strength focused on obeying the Lord and the fulfillment of the Great Commission and unstained by the world. Because as Jesus continues in verse 44, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Meaning, all who reject Christ all who follow in the path of the religious leaders, all who decline and repudiate the offer of salvation and repentance through faith in His name, all such people will find themselves crushed and broken by the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes to judge the world. Those who decline the offer of salvation so freely given by the Lord Jesus, in verse 44, they will be broken to pieces. You see that phrase? meaning they will be shattered, they will be dashed, they will be ground into powder, metaphorically speaking. That's what that word means, by the judgment of God. And for all upon whom the stone falls, meaning for those who are laboring to pull the stone down from its rightful place, like the religious leaders did by having Jesus crucified, by the nations and kings and rulers of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and His anointed, striving against Him and hoping to establish themselves over Him, by those who in our own day, under Satan's dominion, atheists, false religion, culture, secular thinkers, and the rest, who hope to deceive nations, who hope to fool and delude and trick the peoples into turning away from Jesus, as they say wicked and twisted and heretical things like, Jesus was just a good teacher if he even existed, or they twist his words and his person and his commands to such a degree that Jesus really simply reflects current cultural tastes rather than being the holy God of Israel. Who try to bring believers or people to confess evil good and good evil. Jesus said, upon such will the cornerstone fall unless they repent. And it will crush them, verse 44. The word speaks to pulverizing something into a fine dust, winnowing something into nothingness. Jesus is making the point here that those who refuse his offer of salvation by grace through faith in his name, those who, like the religious leaders, spurn his offer of forgiveness to all such as these, their religious hopes are dashed. And should they remain in this condition unto death, their souls will be forfeit and God will become to them not a gracious caller and beckoner to repentance, but he will become your enemy, pouring out upon you his wrath forever and ever. This stone, however, is the most beautiful and firm foundation for and to all who hear and respond in faith to Christ's offer of salvation. And the choice is left hanging in the air as Jesus speaks to the religious leaders. And the same choice is hanging in the air for us this morning. 
To reject Christ is to be one upon whom the stone will fall or one, upon, one who falls upon the stone. Either way, the end result is shattering and or crushing. But to believe in his name is to be one who recognizes the beauty of the chief cornerstone, who being rejected by men is precious in the Lord's sight. It is to be one who is therefore, along with the rest of Christ's people, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, like a living stone built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there is no greater joy than to live for Jesus. Now, ultimately this parable is about rebellion. And how will one know if they are one upon whom the stone is about to fall or one who has built their life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? The great author Joseph Elaine in his book, A Sure Guide to Heaven, wrote this, and we'll, con- we'll conclude with this rather long, hopefully three-minute conclusion. And I quote, Converting grace sets everything in order and puts God on the throne and the world at his footstool. It puts Christ in the heart and the world under the feet. And we say with Paul, I am crucified to the world and the world to me. Before this change, all the cry was, who will show us any worldly good? But now the converted man or woman prays, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon me and take whatsoever will, whatsoever you will. Before his heart's delight and content were in the world. And then the song was, Soul, you have, take ease, eat, drink, be merry, for you have much goods laid up for many years. But now all of this is withered, and there is no sweetness in the world that we should desire it. And he tunes up with the sweet psalmist of Israel, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance, and the lines are fallen to me in a fair place, and I have a goodly heritage. Nothing else can make him content. He has written vanity and vexation upon all of his worldly enjoyments and loss and dung upon all human excellencies. He has life and immortality now in pursuit. He pants for grace and glory and has a crown incorruptible in view. His heart is set in him to seek the Lord. He first seeks the kingdom of God and his righteousness and religion is no longer a casual matter with him but his main care. Before the world had sway with him, he would do more for gain than for godliness, more to please his friends or his flesh than the God who made him. And God must stand by till the world was first served. But now all must stand by. He hates father and mother and life and all in comparison of Christ. Well then, pause a little and look within. Does not this concern you? Do you pretend to be for Christ, but does not the world sway you? Do you not take more real delight and content in the world than in Him? Do you not find yourself more at ease when the world is in your mind and you are surrounded with carnal delights than when you are retired to prayer and meditation in your room or attending upon God's Word and worship? There is no surer evidence of an unconverted state than to have the things of the world uppermost in our aim, uppermost in our love, uppermost in our estimation." With the sound convert, Christ has the supremacy. How dear is his name to you. How precious is his favor. The name of Jesus is engraved on your heart. Honor is but air. Laughter is but madness. Money is, like, is fallen like Dagon before the ark with the hands and heads broken off on the threshold. When once Christ is savingly revealed, here is the pearl of great price to the true convert. Here is his treasure. Here is his hope. This is his glory. My beloved is mine and I am his. Oh, it is sweeter to him to be able to say, Christ is mine, than if he could say, all kingdoms of the earth are mine. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning. We praise you for the example of the rebellious, stubborn, stiff-necked religious leaders who refused to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, 
who refuse to live holy, obedient lives for his glory, who refused to give up the glories of the world, but who instead sought them as uppermost in their affections. I pray that we wouldn't be like them, but as you've transferred oversight of your kingdom to us here and now in this age, I pray that by the power of your Spirit in us that we would not repeat the same mistakes as the, uh, the religious leaders did throughout Israel's history. Help us to have you as our treasure. Help us to pant for your grace and for your glory. Help us to keep the crown, the incorruptible crown in view. Help our hearts to be fully set on seeking you, seeking your kingdom, seeking your righteousness. We pray that when you come for your fruit in season, that you would find it in abundance among us. And we ask this all in the name of and by the power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.